This is Audible. Lion Crest Publishing presents "Can't Hurt Me" by David Goggins, read by David Goggins and Adam Skolnick. Life isn't fair. It's not supposed to be. Life is not biased to anyone. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, gay or lesbian, rich or poor. Life doesn't discriminate. Once you accept the fact that life is going to fuck you up in one way or another, you can start preparing for it. The right mindset is everything. It'll be the only thing that will get you through life. Having a can't hurt me mentality will always keep you in the fight. You have to be open-minded enough to believe that whatever life throws at you, you can overcome. What I'm about to do is very uncomfortable for me. I'm used to sharing my story on a very surface level, but for the last eight months, I drilled deep in my life with Adam, my ghostwriter. I was forced to go back to the sewer where I once lived in my mind. To be honest, writing this book was one of the hardest things I've ever done mentally. Being completely vulnerable and exposed are some of the hardest things a person can ever do. We all have a story. You are all about to hear mine. Life isn't always fun, so how I talk about my life is raw, real, and authentic. I was the ultimate underdog. I was the weakest one of the litter. Knowing that, I had to figure out a way to survive, and ultimately thrive. Back then, there was no talk about mental toughness. That shit didn't even exist. You just had to figure shit out. I realized at a very young age, I was fucked, and I had a very long and hard road to hoe without any tools. I wanted to give up more times than I could count, but that voice in my head wouldn't allow me. Being at a disadvantage forced me to create an indestructible mental toolbox—one I couldn't get from theory. It would have to come from practice and repetition. I had no peace in my life because I was living a lie. I didn't want people to know the real me. No one wants to tell people they are insecure and afraid. I realized for me to find peace, I'd have to face my fucked up life and fix it alone. No one was coming to save me. I didn't want money, fame, awards, or even a pat on the fucking back. I was looking for self fulfillment. I was looking for it everywhere. I realized I couldn't find it from an outside source. It would have to come from within, and to find it, I'd have to be willing to go to war with myself. One thing I figured out along my journey is that you have to believe you are here for a reason, not just floating around willy-nilly. I believe the reason I was put here was to unlock the code to human potential, to tell the world you can be born in a fucking sewer and still be the baddest motherfucker on earth. Just remember one thing: once you climb out of the sewer. And are standing on the road. Look around and take pride in the fact that nothing can hurt you. Man,、uh, I cannot wait to get into this right now, man. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a long time coming, Adam. We've put a lot of hours behind this.、Uh, about what, eight months? Yeah, at least. I think I think we first contacted. Yeah, about almost a year ago now. Well, I'm excited, man.、Um, what we're about to do. Is something I don't believe has ever been done before in the audio book world. We're going to do an audio book slash podcast slash radio show. So we'll see how it turns out. Project slash. 
Um, and so uh, my name's Adam Skolnick. I, I helped David get this book on paper. Um, it was, it's been a labor of love, but it's also been really, uh, challenged because this life to, to be able to, to put this life in stark relief for everyone to see and understand and absorb. It's not, a, it's a, not an easy process for you. No, not at all. It was the hardest thing I've done. Like I said, mentally in my entire life to have to drill down deep in my life and go straight from the surface and go way deep to the, you know, to the sewer where I once lived. You don't want to go back there. You know, once you kind of go back and figure it out and overcome things, I didn't want to revisit that place. Mm. And doing this book made me, you know, revisit it. And also now I'm telling people my life, people I don't even know. So that's even harder. And you asked me to read this uh, because you wanted to universalize your story because this is not about, you know, hero worship for David Goggins. This is about something else, right? No, this isn't about me. And I'm not the hero here. You are the hero. So that's why I'm not reading this book. This book, yes, this is my life. But once again, I'm not the hero. The hero is you. So we're going to get into it now. Uh, there's 11 chapters in this book, and in between are 10 challenges. The principles that David outlines in his book are then uh, encapsulated in these challenges for you listeners to be able to apply them to your life. And that's the whole point of this book. Like, like we were just saying, it's all about creating a toolbox for you listeners to then apply to your life. And the motivation will, of course, come from David's amazing life story. Anything else you want to say to prep these guys for uh, what's about to happen? Yes, like I said in my small and brief introduction was, you know, basically this is about a habit. This, you know, there was no mental toughness class when I was growing up. I had to figure out an indestructible toolbox to get through my life. And what I figured out along the way is your mind has the tactical advantage over you. And that's what I'm trying to fix here for everybody listening to this. Your mind has a tactical advantage. So what do I mean there? What I mean is your mind knows your insecurities. It knows your fears. And your mind can only process so much. And all that stuff that it takes a long time to process, it starts to filter out. So what that means is pain, insecurities, fear. It wants to get rid of it. It doesn't want to face it. That's a challenge that the mind has no time for. So these tools are gonna to teach you to start facing your fears, start tripling down on your insecurities, tripling down on your fears, tripling down on your weaknesses, tripling down on being uncomfortable. And that's where you start becoming mentally, you know, just mentally tough. That's where it happens. And it comes from ownership, ownership of your life completely. And that's exactly what I'm doing here. And that is the hardest part about my story, Adam, is for me to set the example I have to put all of my shit out there for everyone to see I have to own my life situation you are in danger of living a life so comfortable and soft that you will die without ever realizing your true potential mission to unshackle your mind ditch your victims mentality forever own all aspects of your life completely. Build an unbreakable foundation. Execution. Read this cover to cover. 
Study the techniques within. Accept all 10 challenges. Repeat. Repetition will callous your mind. If you do your job to the best of your ability, this will hurt. This mission is not about making yourself feel better. This mission is about being better and having a greater impact on the world. Don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. Classified. This is an origin story of a hero. The hero is you. Introduction. Do you know who you really are and what you're capable of? I'm sure you think so. But just because you believe something doesn't make it true. Denial is the ultimate comfort zone. Don't worry, you aren't alone. In every town, in every country, all over the world, millions roam the streets, dead-eyed as zombies, addicted to comfort, embracing a victim's mentality, and unaware of their true potential. I know this because I meet and hear from them all the time, and because just like you, I used to be one of them. I had a damn good excuse, too. Life dealt me a bad hand. I was born broken, grew up with beatdowns, was tormented in school, and called nigger more times than I can count. We were once poor, surviving on welfare, living in government-subsidized housing, and my depression was smothering. I lived life at the bottom of the barrel, and my future forecast was bleak as fuck. Very few people know how the bottom feels, but I do. It's like quicksand. It grabs you, sucks you under, and won't let go. When life is like that, it's easy to drift and continue to make the same comfortable choices that are killing you over and over again. But the truth is we all make habitual self-limiting choices. It's as natural as a sunset and as fundamental as gravity. It's how our brains are wired, which is why motivation is crap. Even the best pep talk or self-help hack is nothing but a temporary fix. It won't rewire your brain. It won't amplify your voice or uplift your life. Motivation changes exactly nobody. The bad hand that was my life was mine, and mine alone to fix. So I sought out pain, fell in love with suffering, and eventually transformed myself from the weakest piece of shit on the planet into the hardest man God ever created. Or so I tell myself. Odds are you have had a much better childhood than I did and even now might have a damn decent life. But no matter who you are, who your parents are or were, where you live, what you do for a living, or how much money you have, you're probably living at about 40% of your true capability. Damn shame. We all have the potential to be so much more. Years ago, I was invited to be on a panel at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'd never set foot in a university lecture hall as a student. I barely graduated high school. Yet I was at one of the most prestigious institutions in the country to discuss mental toughness with a handful of others. At some point in the discussion, an esteemed MIT professor said that we each have genetic limitations, hard ceilings, that there are some things we just can't do, no matter how mentally tough we are. When we hit our genetic ceiling, he said, mental toughness doesn't enter into the equation. Everyone in that room seemed to accept his version of reality because this senior, tenured professor was known for researching mental toughness. It was his life's work. It was also a bunch of bullshit. And to me, 
he was using science to let us all off the hook. I'd been quiet until then, because I was surrounded by all these smart people feeling stupid. But someone in the audience noticed the look on my face and asked if I agreed. And if you ask me a direct question, I won't be shy. There's something to be said for living it instead of studying it, I said, then turned toward the professor. What you said is true for most people, but not 100%. There will always be the 1% of us who are willing to put in the work to defy the odds. I went on to explain what I knew from experience, that anybody can become a totally different person and achieve what so-called experts like him claim is impossible. But it takes a lot of heart, will, and an armored mind. Heraclitus, a philosopher born in the Persian Empire back in the 5th century BC, had it right when he wrote about men on the battlefield. Out of every 100 men, he wrote, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets. 9 are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one. One is a warrior. From the time you take your first breath, you become eligible to die. You also become eligible to find your greatness and become the one warrior. But it is up to you to equip yourself for the battle ahead. Only you can master your mind, which is what it takes to live a bold life filled with accomplishments most people consider beyond their capability. I am not a genius like those professors at MIT, but I am that one warrior. And the story you are about to hear, the story of my fucked up life, will illuminate a proven path to self-mastery and empower you to face reality, hold yourself accountable, push past pain, learn to love what you fear, relish failure, live to your fullest potential, and find out who you really are. Human beings change through study, habit, and stories. Through my story, you will learn what the body and mind are capable of when they're driven to maximum capacity and how to get there. Because when you're driven, whatever's in front of you, whether it's racism, sexism, injuries, divorce, depression, obesity, tragedy, or poverty, becomes fuel for your metamorphosis. The steps laid out here amount to the evolutionary algorithm, one that obliterates barriers, glimmers with glory, and delivers lasting peace. I hope you're ready. It's time to go to war with yourself. Anything to add here, David? I hope this story doesn't motivate you. I know a lot of you are thinking, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Motivation is crap. Why do I say that? It comes and it goes. You're very motivated on those days when your life is perfect. When the sun is out, when the bills are paid, when the wife or husband, everything is everything's in its right place. That's when most of us are nice and motivated. So it comes and goes. Let's say right now you read this book and you find motivation from this book and you're living in Chicago. Let's say it's December in Chicago. Chicago in December time is real cold and you're motivated to go out for a two mile run. You open that door and that wind chill hits your face. If you're motivated, you're gonna shut that door and go back and sit down on that couch and watch TV. Those people who find more than motivation from this, maybe a little drive, or maybe even a little obsession to change their life. When they open that door, 
and that windshield hits their face, they're going to close it just to go back to their closet and put warm clothes on so they can go back out there and tackle whatever's in front of them. When you're driven and obsessed, you no longer care what's in front of you. If your bills aren't paid because you can't figure out a way to do it, if, you're, you know, if your life isn't perfect, it doesn't matter. You realize that's just life. It's not going to be perfect. But that's not going to derail me from what I have to do to get better. Chapter 1. I Should Have Been a Statistic We found hell in a beautiful neighborhood. In 1981, Williamsville offered the tastiest real estate in Buffalo, New York. Leafy and friendly, its safe streets were dotted with dainty homes filled with model citizens. Doctors, attorneys, steel plant executives, dentists, and professional football players lived there with their adoring wives and their 2.2 kids. Cars were new, roads swept, possibilities endless. We're talking about a living, breathing American dream. Hell was a corner lot on Paradise Road. That's where we lived in a two-story, four-bedroom, white wooden home with four square pillars framing a front porch that led to the whitest, greenest lawn in Williamsville. We had a vegetable garden out back and a two-car garage stocked with a 1962 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud, a 1980 Mercedes 450 SLC, and in the driveway was a sparkling new 1981 black Corvette. Everyone on Paradise Road lived near the top of the food chain. And based on appearances, most of our neighbors thought that we, the so-called happy, well-adjusted Goggins family, were the tip of that spear. But glossy surfaces reflect much more than they reveal. They'd see us most weekday mornings gathered in the driveway at 7 a.m. My dad, Trunus Goggins, wasn't tall, but he was handsome and built like a boxer. He wore tailored suits, his smile warm and open, he looked every bit the successful businessman on his way to work. My mother Jackie was 17 years younger, slender and beautiful, and my brother and I were clean-cut, well-dressed in jeans and pastel Izod shirts, and strapped with backpacks just like the other kids, the white kids. In our version of affluent America, each driveway was a staging ground for nods and waves before parents and children rode off to work and school. Neighbors saw what they wanted. Nobody probed too deep good thing. The truth was the Goggins family had just returned home from another all-nighter in the hood. And if Paradise Road was hell, that meant I lived with the devil himself. As soon as our neighbor shut the door or turned the corner, my father's smile morphed into a scowl. He barked orders and went inside to sleep another one off, but our work wasn't done. My brother, Trunus Jr., and I had somewhere to be, and it was up to our sleepless mother to get us there. I was in first grade in 1981, and I was in a school days for real. Not because the academics were hard, at least not yet, but because I couldn't stay awake. The teacher's sing-song voice was my lullaby, my crossed arms on my desk a comfy pillow, and her sharp words, once she caught me dreaming, an unwelcome alarm clock that wouldn't stop blaring. Children that young are infinite sponges. They soak up language and ideas at warp speed to establish a fundamental foundation upon which most people build lifelong skills, like reading and spelling and basic math. But because I worked nights, I couldn't concentrate on anything most mornings, except trying to stay awake. Recess and PE were a whole different minefield. 
Out on the playground, staying lucid was the easy part. The hard part was the hiding. Couldn't let my shirt slip. Couldn't wear shorts. Bruises were red flags I couldn't show because if I did, I knew I'd catch even more. Still, on that playground and in the classroom, I knew I was safe. For a little while, at least. It was the one place he couldn't reach me. At least not physically. My brother went through a similar dance in sixth grade. His first year in middle school. He had his own wounds to hide and sleep to harvest. Because once that bell rang, real life began. The ride from Williamsville to the Maston District in East Buffalo took about a half an hour, but it may as well have been a world away. Like much of East Buffalo, Maston was a mostly black working class neighborhood in the inner city that was rough around the edges. Though, in the early 1980s, it was not yet completely ghetto as fuck. Back then, the Bethlehem steel plant was still humming, and Buffalo was the last great American steel town. Most men in the city, black and white, worked solid union jobs and earned a living wage, which meant business in Maston was good. For my dad, it always had been. By the time he was 20 years old, he owned a Coca-Cola distribution concession and four delivery routes in the Buffalo area. That's good money for a kid, but he had bigger dreams and an eye on the future. His future had four wheels and a disco funk soundtrack. When a local bakery shut down, he leased the building and built one of Buffalo's first roller skating rinks. Fast forward 10 years and Skateland had been relocated to a building on Ferry Street that stretched nearly a full block in the heart of the Maston District. He opened a bar above the rink, which he named the Vermilion Room. In the 1970s, that was the place to be in East Buffalo. And it's where he met my mother when she was just 19 and he was 36. It was her first time away from home. Jackie grew up in the Catholic Church. Trunus was the son of a minister and knew her language well enough to masquerade as a believer, which appealed to her. But let's keep it real. She was just as drunk on his charm. Trunus Jr. was born in 1971. I was born in 1975, and by the time I was six years old, the roller disco craze was at its absolute peak. Skateland rocked every night. We usually get there around 5 p.m., and while my brother worked the concession stand, popping corn, grilling hot dogs, loading the cooler, and making pizzas, I organized the skates by size and style. Each afternoon, I stood on a step stool to spray my stock with aerosol deodorizer and replace the rubber stoppers. That aerosol stink would cloud all around my head and live in my nostrils. My eyes looked permanently bloodshot. It was the only thing I could smell for hours. But those were the distractions I had to ignore to stay organized and on hustle. Because my dad, who worked the DJ booth, was always watching. And if any of those skates went missing, it meant my ass. Before the doors opened, I'd polish the skate rink floor with a dust mop that was twice my size. At around 6 p.m., my mother called us to dinner in the back office. That woman lived in a permanent state of denial. But her maternal instinct was real, and it made a big fucking show of itself, grasping for any shred of normalcy. Every night in that office, she'd set out two electric burners on the floor, sit with her legs curled behind her, and prepare a full dinner. Roast meat, potatoes, green beans, and dinner rolls, while my dad did the books and made calls. The food was good, but even at six and seven years old, I knew our family dinner was a bullshit facsimile compared to what most families had. Plus, we ate fast. There was no time to enjoy it because at 7 p.m. when the doors opened, it was showtime, and we all had to be in our places with our stations prepped. My dad was the sheriff, and once he stepped into the DJ booth, he had us triangulated. He scanned that room like an all-seeing eye, and if you fucked up, 
you'd hear about it, unless you felt it first. The room didn't look like much under the harsh overhead house lights, but once he dimmed them, the show lights bathed the rink in red and glanced off the spinning mirror ball, conjuring a skate disco fantasy. Weekend or weeknight, hundreds of skaters piled through that door. Most of the time, they came in as a family, paying their $3 entrance fee and half-dollar skate fee before hitting the floor. I rented out the skates and managed that entire station by myself. I carried that step stool around like a crutch. Without it, the customers couldn't even see me. The bigger size skates were down below the counter, but the smaller sizes were stored so high I'd have to scale the shelves, which always made the customers laugh. Mom was the one and only cashier. She collected everyone's cover charge, and to Trunus, money was everything. He counted the people as they came in, calculating his take in real time, so he had a rough idea of what to expect when he counted out the register after we closed up, and it had better all be there. All the money was his. The rest of us never earned a cent for our sweat. In fact, my mother was never given any money of her own. She had no bank account or credit cards in her name. He controlled everything, and we all knew what would happen if her cash drawer ever came up short. None of the customers who came through our doors knew any of this, of course. To them, Skateland was a family-owned and operated dream cloud. My dad spun the fading vinyl echoes of disco and funk and the early rumbles of hip-hop. Bass bounced off the red walls, courtesy of Buffalo's favorite son, Rick James, George Clinton's Funkadelic, and the first tracks ever released by hip-hop innovators Run DMC. Some of the kids were speed skating. I liked to go fast, too, but we had our share of skate dancers, and that floor got funky. For the first hour or two, the parents stayed downstairs and skated, or watched their kids spin the oval. But they would eventually leak upstairs to make their own scene, and when enough of them made their move, Trunus slipped out of the DJ booth so he could join them. My dad was considered the unofficial mayor of Maston, and he was a phony politician to the core. His customers were his marks, and what they didn't know was that no matter how many drinks he poured on the house and bro hugs he shared, he didn't give a fuck about any of them. They were all dollar signs to him. If he poured you a drink for free, it was because he knew you would buy two or three more. While we had our share of all-night skates and 24-hour skate marathons, the skate land doors typically closed at 10 p.m. That's when my mother, brother, and I went to work fishing bloody tampons out of shit-filled toilets, airing the lingering cannabis haze out of both bathrooms, scraping bacteria-loaded gum off the rink floor, cleaning the concession kitchen, and taking inventory. Just before midnight, we'd slog into the office, half-dead. Our mother would tuck in my brother and me beneath a blanket on the office sofa, our heads opposite one another, as the ceiling shook with the sound of bass-heavy funk. Mom was still on the clock. As soon as she stepped inside the bar, Trunus had her working the door or hustling downstairs like a booze mule to fetch cases of liquor from the basement. There was always some menial task to perform, and she didn't stop moving, while my father kept watch from his corner of the bar, where he could take in the whole scene. In those days, Rick James, a Buffalo native and one of my father's closest friends, stopped by whenever he was in town, parking his Excalibur on the sidewalk out front. His car was a billboard that let the hood know a super freak was in the house. He wasn't the only celebrity that came through. O.J. Simpson was one of the NFL's biggest stars, and he and his Buffalo Bills teammates were regulars, as was Teddy Pendergrass and Sister Sledge. If you don't know the names, look them up. Maybe if I had been older, or my father had been a good man, I might have had some pride in being part of a cultural moment like that. But young kids aren't about that life. 
It's almost like no matter who our parents are and what they do, we're all born with a moral compass that's properly tuned. When you're six, seven, or eight years old, you know what feels right and what feels way the fuck off. And when you are born into a cyclone of terror and pain, you know it doesn't have to be that way. And that truth nags at you, like a splinter in your jacked up mind. You can choose to ignore it, but the dull throbbing is always there, as the days and nights bleed together into one blurred memory. Some moments do stick out, though, and one I'm thinking of right now still haunts me. That was the night my mom stepped into the bar before she was expected and found my dad sweet-talking a woman about ten years her junior. Trunas saw her watching and shrugged while my mother eyeballed him and slugged two shots of Johnny Walker Red to calm her nerves. He noticed her reaction and didn't like it one damn bit. She knew how things were, that Trunas ran prostitutes across the border to Fort Erie in Canada, a summer cottage belonging to the president of one of Buffalo's biggest banks doubled as his pop-up brothel. He introduced Buffalo bankers to his girls whenever he needed a longer line of credit, and those loans always came through. My mom knew the young woman she was watching was one of the girls in his stable. She'd seen her before. Once she walked in on them fucking on the skate land off his sofa, where she tucked her children in damn near every night. When she found them together, the woman smiled at her. Trunis shrugged. No, my mom wasn't clueless, but seeing it with her own eyes always burned. Around midnight, my mother drove with one of our security guards to make a bank deposit. He begged her to leave my father. He told her to leave that very night. Maybe he knew what was coming. She did too, but she couldn't run because she had no independent means whatsoever, and she wasn't going to leave us in his hands. Plus, she had no rights to community property because Trunis had always refused to marry her, which was a riddle she was only then starting to solve. My mother came from a solid middle-class family and had always been the virtuous type. He resented that, treated his hookers better than the mother of his sons, and as a result, he had her trapped. She was 100% dependent, and if she wanted to leave, she'd have to walk with nothing at all. My brother and I never slept well at Skateland. The ceiling shook too much because the office was directly below the dance floor. When my mother walked in that night, I was already awake. She smiled, but I noticed the tears in her eyes and remember smelling the scotch on her breath when she scooped me up in her arms as tenderly as she could. My father trailed in after her, sloppy and annoyed. He pulled a pistol from beneath the cushion where I slept. Yes, you heard that right. There was a loaded gun under the cushion on which I slept at six years old. He flashed it at me and smiled before concealing it beneath his pant leg in an ankle holster. In his other hand were two brown paper shopping bags filled with nearly $10,000 in cash. So far, it was a typical night. My parents didn't speak on the drive home, though the tension between them simmered. My mom pulled into the driveway on Paradise Road just before 6 a.m., a little early by our standards. Trunis stumbled from the car, disabled the alarm, dropped the cash on the kitchen table and went upstairs. We followed him, and she tucked us both into our beds, kissed me on the forehead, and turned out the light before slipping into the master suite, where she found him waiting, stroking his leather belt. Trunis didn't appreciate being glared at by my mom, especially in public. This belt came all the way from Texas just to whip you, he said, calmly. Then he started swinging it, buckle first. Sometimes my mother fought back, and she did that night. She threw a marble candlestick at his head. He ducked and it thudded the wall. 
She ran into the bathroom, locked the door, and cowered on the toilet. He kicked the door down and backhanded her hard. Her head slammed into the wall. She was barely conscious when he grabbed a fistful of her hair and dragged her down the hall. By then, my brother and I had heard the violence, and we watched him drag her all the way down the stairs to the first floor, then crouch over her with a belt in his hand. She was bleeding from the temple and the lip, and the sight of her blood lit a fuse in me. In that moment, my hatred overcame my fear. I ran downstairs and jumped on his back, slammed my tiny fists into his back, and scratched at his eyes. I'd caught him off guard, and he fell to one knee. I wailed on him. Don't hit my mom, I yelled. He tossed me to the ground, stalked toward me, belt in hand, then turned toward my mother. You're raising a gangster, he said, half smiling. I curled into a ball when he started swinging his belt at me. I could feel bruises rise on my back as my mom crawled toward the control pad near the front door. She pressed the panic button, and the house exploded in alarm. He froze, looked toward the ceiling, mopped his brow with his sleeve, took a deep breath, looped and buckled his belt, and went upstairs to wash off all that evil and hate. Police were on their way, and he knew it. My mother's relief was short-lived. When the cops arrived, Trunus met them at the door. They looked over his shoulder toward my mom, who stood several paces behind him, her face swollen and caked with dried blood. But those were different days. There was no Me Too back then. That shit didn't exist, and they ignored her. Trunus told them it was all a whole lot of nothing, just some necessary domestic discipline. Look at this house. Does it look like I mistreat my wife? he asked. I give her mink coats, diamond rings. I bust my ass to give her everything she wants, and she throws a marble candlestick at my head? She's spoiled. The police chuckled along with my father as he walked them to their car. They left without interviewing her. He didn't hit her again that morning. He didn't have to. The psychological damage was done. From that point on, it was clear to us that as far as trueness and the law were concerned, it was open season, and we were the hunted. Over the next year, our schedule didn't change much, and the beatings continued, while my mother tried to paper over the darkness with swatches of light. She knew I wanted to be a scout, so she signed me up for a local troop. I still remember putting on that navy blue Cub Scout button-down one Saturday. I felt proud wearing a uniform and knowing at least for a few hours I could pretend that I was a normal kid. My mom smiled as we headed for the door. My pride, her smile, wasn't just because of the damn Cub Scouts. They rose up from a deeper place. We were taking action to find something positive for ourselves in a bleak situation. It was proof that we mattered and that we weren't completely powerless. That's when my father came home from the Vermilion Room. Where are you two going? He glared at me. I stared at the floor. My mother cleared her throat. I'm taking David to his first Cub Scout meeting, she said softly. The hell you are. I looked up and he laughed as my eyes welled up with tears. We're going to the track. Within the hour, we'd arrived at Batavia Downs, an old-school harness horse race track, the type where jockeys ride behind the horses in lightweight buggies. My dad grabbed a racing form as soon as we stepped through the gate. For hours, the three of us watched him place bet after bet, chain smoke, drink scotch, and raise holy hell, as every pony he bet on finished out of the money. With my dad raging at the gambling gods and acting a fool, I tried to make myself as small as possible whenever people walked by, but I still stuck out. 
I was the only kid in the stands dressed like a Cub Scout. I was probably the only black Cub Scout they'd ever seen, and my uniform was a lie. I was a pretender. Trunas lost thousands of dollars that day, and he wouldn't shut up about it on the drive home. His raspy throat, raw from nicotine. My brother and I were in the cramped back seat, and whenever he spat out the window, his phlegm boomeranged into my face. Each drop of his nasty saliva on my skin burned like venom and intensified my hate. I'd long since learned that the best way to avoid a beatdown was to make myself as invisible as possible, avert my eyes, float outside my body, and hope to go unnoticed. It was a practice we'd all honed over the years, but I was done with that shit. I would no longer hide from the devil. That afternoon, as he veered onto the highway and headed home, he continued to rave on, and I mad dogged him from the back seat. Have you ever heard the phrase "faith over fear"? For me, it was hate over fear. He caught my eyes in the rearview mirror. You got something to say? We shouldn't have gone to the track anyway, I said. My brother turned and stared at me like I'd lost my damn mind. My mother squirmed in her seat. Say that one more time. His words came slow, dripping with dread. I didn't say a word, so he started reaching behind the seat, trying to smack me. But I was so small, it was easy to hide. The car veered left and right as he was half turned in my direction, punching air. He'd barely touched me, which only stoked his fire. We drove in silence until he caught his breath. When we get home, you're going to take your clothes off, he said. That's what he'd say when he was ready to bestow a serious beatdown, and there was no avoiding it. I did what I was told. I went into my bedroom and took off my clothes, walked down the hall to his room, closed the door behind me, turned the lights off, then laid across the corner of the bed with my legs dangling, my torso stretched out in front of me, and my ass exposed. That was the protocol, and he'd designed it for maximum psychological and physical pain. The beatings were often brutal, but the anticipation was the worst part. I couldn't see the door behind me. And he'd take his time, letting my dread build. When I heard him open the door, my panic spiked. Even then, the room was so dark I couldn't see much with my peripheral vision. I couldn't prepare for the first smack until his belt hit my skin. It was never just two or three lickings either. There was no particular count, so we never knew when or if he was going to stop. This beating lasted minutes upon minutes. He started on my butt, but the sting was so bad I blocked it with my hands. So he moved down and started whipping my thighs. When I dropped my hands to my thighs, he swung at my lower back. He belted me dozens of times and was breathless, coughing and slick with sweat by the time it was over. I was breathing heavy too, but I wasn't crying. His evil was too real, and my hate gave me courage. I refused to give that motherfucker the satisfaction. I just stood up, looked the devil in his eye, limped to my room. And stood in front of a mirror. I was covered in welts from my neck to the crease at the knees. I didn't go to school for several days. When you're getting beat consistently, hope evaporates. You stifle your emotions, but your trauma off-gasses in unconscious ways. After countless beatings she endured and witnessed, this particular beatdown left my mother in a constant fog, a shell of the woman I remembered from a few years before. She was distracted and vacant most of the time, except when he called her name. Then she'd hop to like she was his slave. 
I didn't know until years later that she was considering suicide. My brother and I took our pain out on each other. We'd sit or stand across from one another, and he would throw punches as hard as he could at me. It usually started out as a game, but he was four years older, much stronger, and he connected with all his power. Whenever I'd fall, I'd get up and he'd hit me again as hard as he could, yelling like a martial arts warrior at the top of his lungs, his face twisted with rage. You're not hurting me? Is that all you fucking have? I'd shout back. I wanted him to know that I could take more pain than he could ever deliver, but when it was time to fall asleep and there were no more battles to fight, no place to hide, I wet the bed nearly every night. My mother's every day was a lesson in survival. She was told she was worthless so often she started to believe it. Everything she did was an effort to appease him so he wouldn't beat her sons or whip her ass. But there were invisible tripwires in her world, and sometimes she never knew when or how she set them off until he slapped the shit out of her. Other times she knew she teed herself up for a vicious beatdown. One day I came home early from school with a nasty earache and laid down on my mother's side of their bed, my left ear throbbing in excruciating pain. With each throb, my hate spiked. I knew I wouldn't be going to the doctor because my father didn't approve of spending his money on doctors or dentists. We didn't have health insurance, a pediatrician, or a dentist. If we got injured or sick, we were told to shake it off because he wasn't down to pay for anything that didn't directly benefit Trunus Goggins. Our health didn't meet that standard, and that pissed me the fuck off. After about a half hour, my mother came upstairs to check on me. And when I rolled onto my back, she could see blood dribbling down the side of my neck and smeared all over the pillow. That's it, she said. Come with me. She got me out of bed, dressed me, and helped me to her car. But before she could start the engine, my dad chased us down. Where do you think you're going? The emergency room, she said, as she turned the ignition. He reached for the handle, but she peeled out first, leaving him in her dust. Furious, he stomped inside, slammed the door, and called out to my brother. Son, get me a Johnny Walker. Trunus Jr. brought over a bottle of Red Label and a glass from the wet bar. He poured and poured and watched my dad down shot after shot, each one fueled an inferno. You and David need to be strong, he raved. I'm not raising a bunch of faggots, and that's what you'll be if you go to the doctor every time you get a little boo-boo, understand? My brother nodded, petrified. Your last name is Goggins, and we shake it off. According to the doctor we saw that night, my mother got me to the ER just in time. My ear infection was so bad that if we'd waited any longer, I would have lost my hearing in my left ear for life. She risked her ass to save mine, and we both knew she'd pay for it. We drove home in eerie silence. My dad was still stewing at the kitchen table by the time we turned onto Paradise Road, and my brother was still pouring him shots. Trunus Jr. feared our father, but he also worshipped the man and was under his spell. As the firstborn son, he was treated better. Trunus would still lash out at him, but in his warped mind, Trunus Jr. was his prince. When you grow up, I'm going to want to see you be the man of your house, Trunus told him, and you're going to see me be a man tonight. Moments after we walked through the front door, Trunus beat our mother senseless, but my brother couldn't watch. Whenever the beatings exploded like a thunderstorm overhead, he'd wait them out in his room. He ignored the darkness because the truth was way too heavy for him to carry. I always paid close fucking attention. During the summers, there was no midweek respite from Trunus, but my brother and I learned to hop on our bikes and stay far away for as long as we could. 
One day I came home for lunch and entered the house through the garage like normal. My father usually slept deep into the afternoon, so I figured the coast was clear. I was wrong. My father was paranoid. He did enough shady deals to attract some enemies, and he'd set the alarm after we left the house. When I opened the door, sirens screamed and my stomach dropped. I froze, backed up against the wall, and listened for footsteps. I heard the stairs creak and knew I was fucked. He came downstairs in his brown terry cloth robe, pistol in hand, and crossed from the dining room into the living room, his gun out front. I could see the barrel come around the corner slowly. As soon as he cleared the corner, he could see me standing just twenty feet away, but he didn't drop his weapon. He aimed it right between my eyes. I stared straight at him, blank as possible, my feet anchored to the floorboards. There was no one else in the house, and part of me expected him to pull the trigger. But by this time in my life, I no longer cared if I lived or died. I was an exhausted eight-year-old kid, plain old fucking tired of being terrified of my father, and I was sick of Skateland too. After a minute or two, he lowered his weapon and went back upstairs. By now, it was becoming clear that someone was going to die on Paradise Road. My mother knew where Trunus kept his thirty-eight. Some days she timed and followed him, envisioned how it would play out. They'd take separate cars to Skateland. She'd grab his gun from beneath the office sofa cushions before he could get there, bring us home early, put us to bed, and wait for him by the front door with his gun in hand. When he pulled up, she'd step out the front door and murder him in his driveway, leave his body for the milkman to find. My uncles, her brothers, talked her out of it, but they agreed she needed to do something drastic, or she'd be the one lying dead. So, David, you were something that we didn't put in this book is that you your your uncles actually tried to talk her into um, having them do something, right? Right. So what happened here was my uncle is a horse trainer. He's a horse whisperer, and he also is a great dog trainer. So we had these canines, and he trained these canines, and he trained them in German. And his idea was, look, Jackie, we need to get you out of here. And what's going to happen is you go get the boys, get David and Chernus, and drive to Indiana. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come in from California. I'm going to go to Buffalo, and I'm going to bring two of my canines with me. And when Chernus, my dad, walks out of Skateland, I'm going to turn my dogs loose. And my mom was like, "This plan's not going to work because basically he has a gun." And my uncle was like, "Well, he can only kill one of my dogs, because the other dog's gonna go for the guy's throat." So that was the big plan on how to take my dad out. Obviously, it never went down, and I don't believe my uncle was gonna ever let it go down. But my mom was at such a horrible place that the only way my mom was gonna ever, you know, kind of be satisfied was if someone had a plan to kill him. So that's kind of how that whole thing went.、Hmm. So he wasn't ever really going to do it, but he was trying to placate her and commit just to get her to leave. You know what? I have to think to myself. I know my uncle pretty well. I don't think he was going to do it, but you never know when your sister has been getting tortured like this for years. You never know what's in a man's mind. No, I mean that's and that's the thing is is that when when this it, it heats up like a kettle. You know, it's like when when domestic violence. It, you know, even even. Whether it's violent or or 
abuse, even emotional abuse, it just kind of it starts to boil and shit happens. And it could have ended up being your uncle who got it, who who ends up in jail for for trying to defend her. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that happens. A hundred percent. Somebody was getting up in jail or dead for sure in that house. It was an old neighbor who showed her a way. Betty used to live across the street from us, and after she moved, they stayed in touch. Betty was 20 years older than my mom and had the wisdom to match. She encouraged my mother to plan her escape weeks in advance. The first step was getting a credit card in her name. That meant she had to re-earn Trunus's trust because she needed him to co-sign. Betty also reminded my mother to keep their friendship a secret. For a few weeks, Jackie played Trunus treated him like she did when she was a 19-year-old beauty with stars in her eyes. She made him believe she worshipped him again. And when she slipped a credit card application in front of him, he said he'd be happy to score her a little buying power. When the card arrived in the mail, my mother felt its hard plastic edges through the envelope as relief saturated her mind. She held it at arm's length and admired it. It glowed like a golden ticket. A few days later, she heard my father talking shit about her on the phone to one of his friends while he was having breakfast with my brother and me at the kitchen table. That did it. She walked over to the table and said, I'm leaving your father. You two can stay or you can come with me. My dad was stunned silent, and so was my brother, but I shot out of that chair like it was on fire, grabbed a few black garbage bags and went upstairs to start packing. My brother eventually started gathering his things too. Before we left, the four of us had one last powwow at the kitchen table. Trunus glared at my mother, filled with shock and contempt. You have nothing, and you are nothing without me, he said. You're uneducated. You don't have any money or prospects. You'll be a prostitute inside a year. He paused, then shifted his focus to my brother and me. You two are going to grow up to be a couple of faggots. And don't think about coming back, Jackie. I'll have another woman here to take your place five minutes after you leave. She nodded and stood. She'd given him her youth, her very soul, and she was finally finished. She packed as little of her past as possible. She left the mink coats and the diamond rings. He could give them to his whore girlfriend as far as she was concerned. Trunus watched us load up into my mom's Volvo, the one vehicle he owned that he wouldn't ride in. Our bikes already strapped to the back. We drove off slowly, and at first he didn't budge, but before she turned the corner, I could see him move toward the garage. My mother floored it. Give her credit. She'd planned for contingencies. She figured he'd tail her, so she didn't head west to the interstate that would take us to her parents' place in Indiana. Instead, she drove to Betty's house down a dirt construction road that my dad didn't even know about. Betty had the garage door open when we arrived. We pulled in, Betty yanked the door down, and while my father shot out on the highway in his Corvette to chase after us, we waited right under his nose until just before nightfall. By then, we knew he'd be at Skateland opening up. He wasn't going to miss a chance to make some money, no matter what. Shit went wrong about 90 miles outside of Buffalo when the old Volvo started burning oil. Huge plumes of inky exhaust choked from the tailpipe, and my mother spun into panic mode. It was as if she'd been holding it all in, stuffing her fear down deep, hiding it beneath a mask of forced composure, until an obstacle emerged and she fell apart. Tears streaked her face. What do I do? my mom asked, her eyes wide as saucers. My brother never wanted to leave, and he told her to turn around. I was riding shotgun. She looked over expectantly. What do I do? 
We gotta go, Mom, I said. Mom, we gotta go. She pulled into a gas station in the middle of nowhere. Hysterical, she rushed to a payphone and called Betty. I can't do this, Betty, she said. The car broke down. I have to go back. Where are you? Betty asked calmly. I don't know, my mom replied. I have no idea where I am. Betty told her to find a gas station attendant. Every station had those back then, and put him on the phone. He explained we were just outside of Erie, Pennsylvania, and after Betty gave him some instructions, he put my mother back on the line. Jackie, there's a Volvo dealer in Erie. Find a hotel tonight and take the car there tomorrow morning. The attendant is going to put enough oil in the car to get you there. My mother was listening, but she didn't respond. Jackie, are you hearing me? Do what I say, and it will be okay. Yeah, okay, she whispered, emotionally spent. Hotel, Volvo dealer, got it. I don't know what Erie is like now, but back then there was only one decent hotel in town, a Holiday Inn, not far from the Volvo dealership. My brother and I followed my mom to the reception desk, where we were hit with more bad news. They were fully booked. My mother's shoulders slumped. My brother and I stood on either side of her, holding our clothes in black trash bags. We were the picture of desperation, and the night manager saw it. Look, I'll set you up with some rollaway beds in the conference room, he said. There's a bathroom down there, but you have to be out early because we have a conference starting at 9 a.m. Grateful, we bedded down in that conference room with its industrial carpet and fluorescent lights, our own personal purgatory. We were on the run and on the ropes, but my mother hadn't folded. She laid back and stared at the ceiling tiles until we nodded off. Then she slipped into an adjacent coffee shop to keep an anxious eye on our bikes and on the road all night long. We were waiting outside that Volvo dealership when the garage opened up, which gave the mechanics just enough time to source the part we needed to get us back on the road before their day was done. We left Erie at sunset and drove all night, arriving at my grandparents' house in Brazil, Indiana. Eight hours later, my mom wept as she parked next to their old wooden house before dawn, and I understood why. Our arrival felt significant then and now. I was still only eight years old, but already in a second phase of life. I didn't know what awaited me, what awaited us in that small rural southern Indiana town, and I didn't much care. All I knew was that we'd escaped from hell, and for the first time in my life, we were free from the devil himself. We stayed with my grandparents for the next six months, and I enrolled in second grade for the second time at a local Catholic school called Annunciation. I was the only eight-year-old in second grade, but none of the other kids knew I was repeating a year, and there was no doubt that I needed it. I could barely read, but I was lucky enough to have Sister Catherine as my teacher. Short and petite, Sister Catherine was sixty years old and had one gold front tooth. She was a nun, but didn't wear the habit. She was also grumpy as hell and took no shit. And I loved her thug ass. Annunciation was a small school. Sister Catherine taught all of first and second grade in a single classroom, and with only 18 kids to teach, she wasn't willing to shirk her responsibility and blame my academic struggles or anybody's bad behavior on learning disabilities or emotional problems. She didn't know my backstory and didn't have to. All that mattered to her was that I turned up at her door with a kindergarten education, and it was her job to shape my mind. She had every excuse in the world to farm me out to some specialist or label me a problem, but that wasn't her style. She started teaching before labeling kids was a normal thing to do, and she embodied the no excuses mentality that I needed if I was going to catch up. 
Sister Catherine is the reason why I'll never trust a smile or judge a scowl. My dad smiled a hell of a lot, and he didn't give two shits about me. But grouchy Sister Catherine cared about us, cared about me. She wanted us to be our very best. I know this because she proved it by spending extra time with me, as much time as it took, until I retained my lessons. Before the year was out, I could read at a second grade level. Trunus Jr. hadn't adjusted nearly as well. Within a few months, he was back in Buffalo, shadowing my father and working that skateland detail like he'd never left. By then, we'd moved into a place of our own, a 600-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment at Lamplight Manor, a public housing block that cost us $7 a month. My father, who earned thousands every night, sporadically sent $25 every three or four weeks, if that, for child support, while my mother earned a few hundred dollars a month with her department store job. In her off hours, she was taking courses at Indiana State University, which cost money too. The point is, we had gaps to fill. So my mother enrolled in welfare and received $123 a month and food stamps. They wrote her a check for the first month, but when they found out she owned a car, they disqualified her, explaining that if she sold her car, they'd be happy to help. The problem is, we lived in a rural town with a population of about 8,000 that didn't have a mass transit system. We needed that car so I could get to school and she could get to work and take night classes. She was hell-bent on changing her life circumstances and found a workaround through the Aid to Dependent Children program. She arranged for our check to go to my grandmother, who signed it over to her. But that didn't make life easy. How far can 123 bucks really go? I vividly recall one night we were so broke, we drove home on a gas tank that was near empty to a bare refrigerator and a past-due electric bill with no money in the bank. Then I remembered that we had two mason jars filled with pennies and other loose change. I grabbed them off the shelf. Mom, let's count our change. She smiled. Growing up, her father had taught her to pick up the change she found on the street. He was molded by the Great Depression and knew what it was like to be down and out. You never know when you might need it, he'd say. When we lived in hell, carrying home thousands of dollars every night, the notion that we would ever run out of money sounded ludicrous. But my mother retained her childhood habit. Trunis used to belittle her for it, but now it was time to see how far found money could take us. We dumped that change out on the living room floor and counted out enough to cover the electric bill, fill the gas tank, and buy groceries. We even had enough to buy burgers at Hardee's on the way home. These were dark times, but we were managing, barely. My mother missed Trunus Jr. terribly, but she was pleased that I was adjusting and making friends. I'd had a good year at school, and from our first night in Indiana, I hadn't wet the bed once. It seemed that I was healing, but my demons weren't gone. They were dormant. And when they came back, they hit hard. Third grade was a shock to my system. Not just because we had to learn cursive when I was still getting the hang of reading block letters, but because our teacher, Miss D, was nothing like Sister Catherine. Our class was still small. We had about 20 kids total, split between third and fourth grade, but she didn't handle it nearly as well and wasn't interested in taking the extra time I required. My trouble started with the standardized tests we took during our first couple of weeks of class. Mine came back a mess. I was still way behind the other kids, and I had trouble building on lessons from the previous days, let alone the previous academic year. Sister Catherine considered similar signs as cues to dedicate more time with her weakest student, and she challenged me daily. Miss D looked for a way out. Within the first month of class, she told my mother that I belonged in a different school, one for special students. Every kid knows what special means. 
means you are about to be stigmatized for the rest of your damn life. It means that you are not normal. The threat alone was a trigger, and I developed a stutter almost overnight. My thought-to-speech flow was jammed up with stress and anxiety, and it was at its worst in school. Imagine being the only black kid in class, in an entire school, and enduring the daily humiliation of also being the dumbest. I felt like everything I tried to do or say was wrong, and it got so bad that instead of responding and skipping like scratched vinyl whenever the teacher called my name, I often chose to keep quiet. It was all about limiting exposure to save face. Miss D didn't even attempt to empathize. She went straight to frustration and vented it by yelling at me, sometimes when she was leaning down, her hand on the back of my chair, her face just inches from my own. She had no idea the Pandora's box she was tearing open. Once, school was a safe harbor, the one place I knew I couldn't be hurt, but in Indiana, it morphed into my torture chamber. Miss D wanted me out of her classroom, and the administration supported her until my mother fought for me. The principal agreed to keep me enrolled if my mother signed off on time with a speech therapist and put me into group therapy with a local shrink they recommended. The psychologist's office was adjacent to a hospital, which was exactly where you'd want to put it if you were trying to make a little kid doubt himself. It was like a bad movie. The shrink set up seven chairs in a semicircle around him, but some of the kids wouldn't or couldn't sit still. One child wore a helmet and banged his head against the wall repeatedly. Another kid stood up while the doctor was mid-sentence, walked toward a far corner of the room, and pissed in the trash can. The kid sitting next to me was the most normal person in the group, and he had set his own house on fire. I can remember staring up at the shrink on my first day, thinking, there's no way I belong here. That experience kicked my social anxiety up several notches. My stutter was out of control. My hair started falling out, and white splotches bloomed on my dark skin. The doctor diagnosed me as an ADHD case and prescribed Ritalin, but my problems were more complex. I was suffering from toxic stress. The type of physical and emotional abuse I was exposed to has been proven to have a range of side effects on young children, because in our early years, the brain grows and develops so rapidly. If during those years, your father is an evil motherfucker hell-bent on destroying everyone in his house, stress spikes. And when those spikes occur frequently enough, you can draw a line across the peaks. That's your new baseline. It puts kids in a permanent fight-or-flight mode. Fight-or-flight can be a great tool when you're in danger because it amps you up to battle through or sprint from trouble, but it's no way to live. I'm not the type of guy to try to explain everything with science, but facts are facts. I've read that some pediatricians believe toxic stress does more damage to kids than polio or meningitis. I know firsthand that it leads to learning disabilities and social anxiety, because according to doctors, it limits language development and memory, which makes it difficult for even the most gifted student to recall what they have already learned. Looking at the long game, when kids like me grow up, they face an increased risk for clinical depression, heart disease, obesity, and cancer. Not to mention smoking, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Those raised in abusive households have an increased probability of being arrested as a juvenile by 53%. Their odds of committing a violent crime as an adult are increased by 38%. I was the poster child of that generic term we've all heard before, at-risk youth. My mother wasn't the one raising a thug. Look at the numbers and it's clear. If anyone put me on a destructive path, it was Trunus Goggins. I didn't stay in group therapy for long, and I didn't take Ritalin either. My mom picked me up after my second session and I sat in the front seat of her car wearing a thousand-yard stare. Mom, I'm not going back, I said. These boys are crazy. She agreed. But I was still a damaged kid. 
And while there are proven interventions on the best way to teach and manage kids who suffer from toxic stress, it's fair to say that Miss D didn't get those memos. I can't blame her for her own ignorance. The science wasn't nearly as clear in the 1980s as it is now. All I know is, Sister Catherine toiled in the trenches with the same malformed kid that Miss D dealt with, but she maintained high expectations and didn't let her frustration overwhelm her. She had the mindset of, look, everybody learns in a different way and we're going to figure out how you learn. She deduced that I needed repetition, that I needed to solve the same problems over and over again in a different way to learn, and she knew that took time. Miss D was all about productivity. She was saying, keep up or get out. Meanwhile, I felt backed into a corner. I knew if I didn't show some improvement, I would eventually be shipped out to that special black hole for good. So I found a solution. I started cheating my ass off. Studying was hard, especially with my fucked up brain, but I was a damn good cheat. I copied friends' homework and scanned my neighbor's work during tests. I even copied the answers on the standardized tests that didn't have any impact on my grades. It worked. My rising test scores placated Miss D, and my mother stopped getting calls from school. I thought I'd solved a problem when really I was creating new ones by taking the path of least resistance. My coping mechanism confirmed that I would never learn squat at school and that I would never catch up, which pushed me closer toward a flunked-out fate. The saving grace of those early years in Brazil was that I was way too young to understand the kind of prejudice I would soon face in my new hick hometown. Whenever you're the only one of your kind, you're in danger of being pushed toward the margins, suspected and disregarded, bullied and mistreated by ignorant people. That's just the way life is, especially back then. And by the time that reality kicked me in the throat, my life had already become a full-fledged fuck-you fortune cookie. Whenever I cracked it open, I got the same message. You were born to fail. Man, David Goggins. That's a tough eight, nine years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it, it definitely did damage on me, man. It did a lot of damage on me. We made a choice here when you were talking about, you know, we talked about maybe a half dozen or more beatdowns when we were going through it. And, and uh, you zeroed in on these ones as kind of the symbolic ones that you wanted to focus on. Right. And I'm curious uh, why you chose these. And um, was it hard to, to minimize? Did, did you, was there ever part of you that felt like you're actually minimizing what you went through? Oh, I was definitely minimizing it. But I, I can give you a great answer on why I chose these. It was kind of like a... Uh, I guess the most bang for your buck and the reason why I say that is I actually to for a young kid to physically see your mom physically and mentally see your mom changing and these moments are some of the breaking moments of my mom like my mom was a rock mm. she was a rock throughout most of this because she had to be for myself and my brother but this moment with the whole Cub Scout scene and when I got home, that beating, I mean, it was it was something that she witnessed. And the, the look on her face, it was even worse than the beating I received. Hmm. I had I had just gotten the VFW award for the um, for for um, Americanism, the Americanism VFW award. And I was thanking people up there. And I was thanking my uncle, and I was, you know, thanking the service men and women. That was earlier summer 2018, right? Right, right. It just happened not too long ago. And I was thanking people, and I got to my mom, and um, I had thousands of people staring at me, 
and I had delivered several speeches before in my life. And when I was trying to thank her, the flood of this memory um, kind of came to my mind. And I had to put my head down for the fact that I was choked up and tearing up. And it wasn't the, the beating I got. Her face is tattooed, is forever tattooed in my mind. And that's why I chose this one, because this one was the one that literally changed me. And it changed my mom. The one of the Cub Scout one or the one after the ear earache? Sorry about that. There was a couple of them there. There was It was the one after the Cub Scout one when my dad had me laying across the bed for about 45 minutes. Because when I walked out, the you know, it usually takes a while for kind of welts to kind of get there. Yeah. These welts were immediate. Mm. And um, the, the black and blue, and I was trying to hide in my bedroom. And when she walked in my bedroom, I was in the bed. And when she pulled the covers out, and she saw my body. That's that's when it all it all changed. And I was a part of that moment when I saw the look in her eye, and um, we kind of met eyes. And it was like, oh man, this was. You don't want to ever see your mom look like that. It was just horrible. See, this is the the behind the scenes shit right here because it's it, most people if they just read the book they'd feel like okay, the arc that you're sharing in this chapter is the arc of you kind of going through the beatings. When right. in reality, you chose them because it's the arc of your mother's kind of destruction. And it, exactly. Another thing we don't talk about here is, I, it, as, as embarrassing as it is to me, I went to bed every night in Buffalo, New York. And my mom, um, she would go in almost every night. So she'd wake up almost every night and she would take my sheets and hide them and try to wash them because my dad would beat me senselessly for wetting the bed because, you know, that was all about, you know, you're not a man. You know, you, you peeing in the bed was not a man. But I was a big, tough guy when it came to challenging my father. But at nighttime, that demon, that demon would come and roost in my head when I would sleep. And that's why I would pee in the bed every night because I was truly afraid and I was overcoming myself to protect my mom so often. But something's got to give. And that's what gave. Hmm. And if you could approximate how many times you you were beaten by your father or you saw your mother beaten, would it be in the hundreds? I would say it would easy be in the hundreds. I would get I would get a whip. And there's one time I had my bike. As we were talking about my bike here, me and my brother ride bikes. There's one time my dad told me he was at the kitchen table, and the kitchen table had a had a window that looked out, and he said, "David, don't ride in the street." We all know what that means. Don't ride in the street. Roger that. I'm not going to ride in the street. So I was turning my bike around and my bike wheel, I was in someone's driveway and my dad could see me from the window where he was sitting at. And I was turning my bike around and my front tire literally touched the street as I was turning around. I didn't ride in the street. I was turning around. My front tire gr literally grazed the actual street. And I got back on the sidewalk. When I got inside that house, he beat the shit out of me for that. So it didn't have to be a big reason. It just had to be like if he thought that you disobeyed him. It was it, it was game on. It was game on. Crazy man. Well, um, I think it's it's amazing that you're sharing this much, and I know you're gonna about to ask the the readers and the listeners to kind of divulge their material here in the first challenge um, and so I, I want to go through the challenge and then we can talk about 
this challenge and kind of why you know why you decided to challenge your readers and listeners in the book. I'll just start. I'll start going through it now, if you don't mind. No, it's perfect, man. Let's do it. Challenge number one: My bad cards arrived early and stuck around a while, but everyone gets challenged in life at some point. What was your bad hand? What kind of bullshit did you contend with growing up? Were you beaten, abused, bullied? Did you ever feel insecure? Maybe your limiting factors that you grew up so supported and comfortable, you never pushed yourself. What are the current factors limiting your growth and success? Is someone standing in your way at work or school? Are you underappreciated and overlooked for opportunities? What are the long odds you're up against right now? Are you standing in your own way? Break out your journal. If you don't have one, buy one, or start one on your laptop, tablet, or in the Notes app on your smartphone, and write them all out in minute detail. Don't be bland with this assignment. I showed you every piece of my dirty laundry. If you are hurt or are still in harm's way, tell the story in full. Give your pain shape. Absorb its power, because you are about to flip that shit. You will use your story, this list of excuses. These very good reasons why you shouldn't amount to a damn thing to fuel your ultimate success. Sounds fun, right? Yeah, it won't be. But don't worry about that yet. We'll get there. For now, just take inventory. Once you have your list, share it with whoever you want. For some, it may mean logging onto social media, posting a picture, and writing out a few lines about how your own past or present circumstances challenge you to the depth of your soul. If that's you, use the hashtags: hashtag #badhand. Hashtag can't hurt me. Otherwise, acknowledge and accept it privately. Whatever works for you. I know it's hard, but this act alone will begin to empower you to overcome. So obviously, you know, judging on this chapter, you know, you feel like there's power in in taking inventory and owning your story. Do you want to explain this challenge and and why it's so important? Well, I realized what. So all this stuff made me so weak. Because it's how I looked at it. I looked at it that I had a jacked-up foundation. I looked at it that my mom, you know, my mom became my my dad took her soul. And so, as as you read further and further on, that my mindset was controlling my destiny. When you have a poopy pants type of mentality, and this happened to me, and that happened to me, and woe is me, and you're kicking rocks down the street with your head down, versus looking at this, and you have to find power. You have to find power in everything negative in your life. You have to do that. So by you writing this stuff down, by you owning it, you have to. This is now a part of your life, whether you like it or not. So, so if that's a fact, if it's a fact that this is now a part of my life, whether I like it or not, you better go ahead and start liking it. You better find power within your own story. You better look at your story if it's a bad one as, hey, motherfucker. You can't hurt me, whatever that may be. You better start owning that and flipping and start saying to yourself, "Yeah, there's a lot of people out here who might have had a better life than you, and they may have a little bit of a head start on life than what you had." But that should be very powerful, you know, for for you or anybody else. Why is that powerful? I can tell you why, because from that right there alone, you can start slowly catching these people, realizing where you come from. Realizing the pain you endured, the suffering you endured. If you were bullied, if you have a bad, you know, bad family, whatever, you have to use this and flip the negative upside down and find positive power to fuel you forward. 
Stop kicking a rock down the road. Own it and make it a part of your life. As, as if the survival through a trying experience, a suf- experience that, where you suffered, if you survive that right there, that's power, right? I mean, you can use it to, to continue to push you further. That's right. And it's a lot more than surviving. You want to thrive. You want to be that person who was given a fucked up deck of hand, you know, like j- just a fucked up hand. Yeah. And that person says, okay, you know what? I have a bunch of twos and threes. There's a, there's a card game called War. And in war, what happens is you want to have the highest cards. One person flips over a card and then you flip over a card. The highest card wins. I looked at my life at this time as having a bunch of twos, threes, fours, and fives, maybe one ten. And having that messed up hand, if you can still win the game of war, that gives you a ton of power. So it's about more than survival. It's about thriving in the situation that most people think is impossible for you to be truly amazing. Yeah, I mean, this is what you're laying out. You had a bad hand. You were the at-risk youth. You had all the excuses. The chapter one is your list of excuses. You could have packed it in. That's right. I should have been a statistic. You know, I, I should have been a statistic, which is the beauty of it all. That's the power of it all. People start seeing where I gauge my power is from the crap I lived in. There's so much power in this crap that we live in that people just don't look at it that way. But there's, it's, a, it's just a powerful thing that, that, that we can harness if we know how to look at it the right way. We have to learn how to look at it the right way. And looking at it the right way is owning it first. Hmm. But it would be a little while before you were able to fully start to harness it in any productive way. 100%. This is, it's, it's a long time coming. It's a long, long, long time coming. And, and just a quick word on why you decided to include challenges in your book. Well, the thing about it is you have to have something that you can look at and say, okay, how can I fix this part of my life? And like we talk about, everything, everything in life is about repetition. How, you know, Sister Catherine, I thought for sure there was no way in hell I was going to ever even pass the second grade. But Sister Catherine taught me one thing through reps. You have to put the repetition in. And these challenges are doing exactly that. A lot of people, they do something once and they give up on it. This is something that you have to do every single day of your life. You have to hold yourself at this standard. It can't be something you do every now and then and you know, then you get tired of it and you move on. This is a discipline. Right now, challenge one is starting the road down self-discipline. No one is going to come to help you. No one's coming to save you. All that crap is now yours. You have to develop the key word there is self-discipline. And that's how you're going to overcome every single challenge of your life. This is challenge one that I'm giving you in my book. Tons of you have tons of challenges that you're facing every day. But it comes to repetition and self-discipline. So you set up a um, kind of a protocol to be able to, and some of these challenges the reader can go back to over and over again whenever they have trouble. And the idea is to is to go through these challenges to develop the discipline and the mental toughness to, to push forward and, and to progress in their lives. Exactly. Exactly. It's all about progressing. If you're not moving forward, either you're getting better or you're getting worse. If, if you're telling somebody, oh, I'm about the same, that means you're getting worse. These challenges are also, they're, they're huge. And, you know, I, I wrote this book, 
you know, I'm my own hero. And what that's all about is, you know, we, we live our lives. We look up to so many people. We look up to, maybe you look up to a golfer or a, or a scientist or a basketball player, whatever. These people, normal people, we are all normal people. We will all, you know, someone will always let you down. Bottom line. So the whole thing about this is these challenges are here for you to be your own hero. I don't want you to look up to me. You know, hopefully somewhere in here, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be your hero. I am not. I want you to get these challenges, flip these challenges upside down, make these challenges work for you so you, then you can be your own hero and start seeing yourself the way, you know, you were here to be seen. I love that. It's, 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 it's very much in line with the way humans have always told each other stories and, and finding the hero story because within the hero story is a message for you. And, and to, for you to not only tell your story, but then to give a framework for people to then do that for themselves, uh, I think that's really empowering. And that's one of the reasons I'm super excited to be reading this book and working on it with you. Well, I think the biggest takeaway through this whole book will always be coming back to the individual. I want the individual to always know that this, this isn't about me. Yeah, yeah you are reading my life. You are reading my life. When I say can't hurt me, I want everybody out there to take that as their own. So just understand that you need to be your own hero. So that's where it all starts at, right there. Chapter 2. Truth Hurts. Wilmoth Irving was a new beginning. Up until he met my mother and asked for her phone number, all I'd known was misery and struggle. When the money was good, our lives were defined by trauma. Once we were free of my father, we were swept under by our own PTSD-level dysfunction and poverty. Then, when I was in fourth grade, she met Wilmoth, a successful carpenter and general contractor from Indianapolis. She was attracted to his easy smile and laid-back style. There was no violence in him. He gave us permission to exhale. With him around, it felt like we had some support, like something good was finally happening to us. She laughed when they were together. Her smile was bright and real. She stood up a little straighter. He gave her pride and made her feel beautiful again. As for me, Wilmoth became as close to a healthy father figure as I've ever had. He didn't coddle me. He didn't tell me he loved me or any of that fake-ass sappy shit. But he was there. Basketball had been an obsession of mine since grade school. It was the core of my relationship with my best friend, Johnny Nichols, and Wilmoth had game. He and I hit the courts together all the time. He showed me moves, tuned up my defensive discipline, and helped me develop a jump shot. The three of us celebrated birthdays and holidays together, and the summer before eighth grade, he got down on one knee and asked my mother to make it official. Wilmoth lived in Indianapolis, and our plan was to move in with him the following summer. Though he wasn't nearly as rich as Trunus, he made a nice living, and we looked forward to city life again. Then, in 1989, the day after Christmas, everything stopped. We hadn't made the full-time move to Indy yet, and he'd spent Christmas Day with us at my grandparents' place in Brazil. The next day, he had a basketball game in his men's league, and he'd invited me to sub for one of his teammates. I was so excited I'd packed my bags two days early, but that morning he told me I couldn't come after all. I'm going to keep you back here this time, little David, he said. I dropped my head and sighed. He could tell I was upset and tried to reassure me. Your mom is going to drive up in a few days and we can play ball then. 
I nodded reluctantly, but I wasn't raised to pry into the affairs of adults and knew I wasn't owed an explanation or makeup game. My mother and I watched from the front porch as he backed out of the carport, smiled and gave us that crisp single wave of his. Then he drove off. It was the last time we'd ever see him alive. He played in his men's league game that night as planned and drove home alone to the house with the white lions. Whenever he gave directions to friends, family, or delivery guys, that's how he always described his ranch-style house, its driveway framed by two white lion sculptures elevated on pillars. He pulled between them and into the garage, where he could enter the house directly, oblivious to the danger moving in from behind. He never did close that garage door. They'd been staking him out for hours, waiting for a window, and as he climbed out from the driver's side door, they stepped from the shadows and fired from close range. He was shot five times in the chest. When he dropped to the floor of his garage, the gunman stepped over him and delivered a kill shot right between his eyes. Wilmot's father lived a few blocks away, and when he drove by the White Lions the next morning, he noticed his son's garage door open and knew something was wrong. He walked up the driveway and into the garage where he sobbed over his dead son. Wilmoth was just 43 years old. I was still at my grandmother's house when Wilmoth's mother called moments later. She hung up and motioned me to her side to break the news. I thought about my mom. Wilmoth had been her savior. She'd been coming out of her shell, opening up, ready to believe in good things. What would this do to her? Would God ever give her a damn break? It started as a simmer, but within seconds my rage overwhelmed me. I broke free of my grandmother, punched the refrigerator, and left a dent. We drove to our place to find my mother, who was already frantic because she hadn't heard from Wilmoth. She called his house just before we arrived, and when a detective picked up the phone, it puzzled her. But she didn't expect this. How could she? We saw her confusion as my grandmother walked over, peeled the phone from her fingers, and sat her down. She didn't believe us at first. Wilmoth was a prankster and this was just the kind of fucked-up stunt he might try to pull off. Then she remembered he'd been shot two months before. He told her that the guys who'd done it weren't after him, that those bullets were meant for someone else, and because they merely grazed him, she decided to forget about the whole thing. Until that moment, she never suspected that Wilmoth had some secret street life she knew nothing about, and the police never did find out exactly why he was shot and killed. The speculation was that he was involved in a shady business deal, or a drug deal gone bad. My mother was still in denial when she packed a bag, but she included a dress for his funeral. When we arrived, his house was wrapped in a ribbon of yellow police tape, like a fucked up Christmas gift. This was no prank. My mom parked, ducked under the tape, and I followed right behind her to the front door. On the way, I remember glancing to my left, trying to get a glimpse of the scene where Wilmoth had been killed. His cold blood was still pooled on the garage floor. I was a 14-year-old wandering through an active crime scene, but nobody, not my mother, not Wilmoth's family, and not even the police seemed disturbed by me being there, absorbing the heavy vibe of my would-be stepfather's murder. As fucked up as it sounds, the police allowed my mom to stay in Wilmoth's house that night. Rather than stay alone, she had her brother-in-law there, armed with his two guns in case the killers came back. I wound up in a back bedroom at Wilmoth's sister's place, a dark and spooky house a few miles away, and left alone all night. The house was furnished with one of those analog cabinet television sets, 
with 13 channels on the dial. Only three channels came in static-free, and I kept it on the local news. They ran the same tape on a loop every 30 minutes. Footage of my mom and me ducking under police tape, then watching Wilmoth get wheeled on a gurney toward a waiting ambulance, a sheet over his body. It was like a horror scene. I sat there all alone, watching the same footage over and over. My mind was a broken record that kept skipping into darkness. The past had been bleak, and now our sky-blue future had been blown the fuck up too. There would be no reprieve, only my familiar fucked-up reality choking out all light. Each time I watched, my fear grew until it filled the room, and still, I could not stop. A few days after we buried Wilmoth, and just after the new year, I boarded a school bus in Brazil, Indiana. I was still grieving, and my head was spinning because my mother and I hadn't decided whether or not we were staying in Brazil or moving to Indianapolis as planned. We were in limbo, and she remained in a state of shock. She still hadn't cried over Wilma's death. Instead, she became emotionally vacant again. It was as if all the pain she'd experienced in her life resurfaced as one gaping wound she disappeared into, and there was no reaching her in that void. In the meantime, school was starting up, so I played along looking for any shred of normal I could hang on to. But it was hard. I rode a bus to school most days, and my first day back I couldn't shake a memory I buried from the year before. That morning I slid into a seat above the back left tire overlooking the street as usual. When we arrived at school, the bus pulled up to the curb. We needed to wait for the ones ahead of us to move before we could get off. In the meantime, a car pulled alongside us, and a cute, overeager little boy ran toward our bus carrying a platter of cookies. The driver didn't see him. The bus jerked forward. I noticed the alarmed look on his mother's face before the sudden crush of blood splattered my window. His mother howled in horror. She wasn't among us anymore. She looked and sounded like a fierce, wounded animal as she literally pulled the hair from her head by the roots. Soon sirens wailed in the distance and screamed closer by the second. The little boy was about six years old. The cookies were a...